Welcome to the Queer SLP Podcast. We are two speech-language pathologists who identify with the LGBT plus community. On each episode, we'll highlight relevant queer issues and stories from our field. The Queer SLP Podcast's mission is to provide informative and pertinent content from proud and chatty SLPs. Welcome to the Queer SLP. My name is Hector, and my pronouns are he, him. And I'm Natalie. My pronouns are she, her. Welcome to another proud professional episode. Yes, I'm so excited for this one. We know it's been a while, but maybe we can check in and explain, you know, why there's been such a shortish hiatus. But, you know, just to let the people, you know, know what's up. So what's going on, Natalie? Well, (laughs) I may have mentioned in previous episodes that Andrea and I decided to move to the East Coast. Did you fly there or did you drive there? We drove with two cats in the back seat. How long Uh, did that take? It took six days. So Intentional six days? Like, did you space it out? Okay. Because um, we didn't want the cats to be in the car for too long. So we spaced it out so that we would not be torturing them in the car for too long every day. Although, to be honest, they mostly slept the whole time. Yeah. Were there any so, good stops on the way? Um, It was just really pretty most for the most part. We, we did have one leaky tub and one chipped windshield that ended up being a crack across Ooh. the entire windshield. Oh. But it just kind of amazed me. And I think that we were driving through Montana and the sun was setting and it was so gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And we drove through these huge fields full of wind turbines in Minnesota. It's just like tons of them as yeah. far as you could see. And it's just like, wow, that's so cool. Amazed me. And just all the farmland. And it's really beautiful. And the people are really nice. And it was good. It was, it was really good. I mean, most of the time we were in the car. Right. And or in our hotel room trying to avoid people because, you know, COVID still happens. Mm-hmm. And like they say, the journey, something about the journey. <laughs> <laughs> they say something about journey. Something yeah. about journey, <laughs> but it's not about the music group. <laughs> Don't stop believing. I'm so glad because I, I thought that to go there too with you. So okay. I'm glad we Very did um, <laughs> but anyway, now I'm in upstate New York and we're actually living in a hotel right now waiting for our new apartment to be ready. But um, we're here safe and sound and my mom's all excited to have us closer. Yeah. And I, what about you? I was thinking about this when you were traveling because it was like the perfect excuse for you to not involve yourself in like the whole election process aside from, I mean, like the noise oh, yeah. related to it. So I could say even from my end... The hiatus was much needed just to deal with the election anxiety. Yeah, there was a lot of anxiety there. Mm-hmm. And I was so, trying not to check my phone too much. Oh, I was on it religiously. Like, it was so bad. And I, I, I signed off of my social media as far as, like, Facebook goes. But, like, you know how you're if you're on your phone and you're in Google or whatever, um, if you go to a website enough, it, like, automatically becomes a bookmark. Well, now election results is... <laughs> I too, I too. 
Yeah. And I'm like, oh, dang it. <laughs> yeah. So but, that's new. Um, you know, it, and it was very stressful. There was a mm-hmm. lot of anxiety and... And disappointment. And, yeah. Not going to lie. Yeah. I was disappointed it wasn't a landslide. But, you know, we can go into that in future episodes and tidbits here and there. But that's yeah. just where I'm at with it. I am relieved now. But I think the, like, emotional fatigue got to me especially with this time change and the seasons changing it's dark here in seattle at 4 p.m <laughs> you know so yeah um gotta get my happy lamp out soon so get out your happy lamp yep i love that gotta take my vitamin d supplements um things like that but yeah that's where i'm at other than that um just chugging along ho- hoping the school year ends soon <laughs> Even though it's only November. Are you looking for that time machine? I'm like, isn't it June? Because that's how I feel. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh. um, you know, we're all collectively going through it. You know, yes. I'm giving myself that grace. So, well, um, with that, yeah. We have our next proud professional. So, let's get started with that. Enjoy. So I am super excited to introduce this person today because this individual was my very first graduate student intern. We met in 2008, I believe. Was that? I think that was right. 2008. This person just kind of blew me out of the water and she she was so amazing. But what's also really great about it was that this person is queer. And that was my first time having a colleague that was queer. And so that was cool. And then she ended up coming to work in the same setting, the same employer as me. And so today we have Rebecca Vondering, who has come here today to tell us her proud professional story. Yay. So hi, hi Rebecca. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Welcome. So let's start with, we like to start a little bit about like coming out stories and kind of our background. Why the beginning. Start? Let's start at the very beginning. Okay, I'll, I'll try not to sing too much. Um, so, so Rebecca, why don't you tell us a little bit about like how you became, how you, how you became queer. Well, my mom and my dad. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. Just tell us about you and the backstory yeah. and, you know, start from there. I am a dual citizen. I'm a U.S. and German-born citizen. I was actually born in Germany. My mother is a German national, she, and she's uh, a green – well, she was formerly a green card holder. She just had to let it go during the pandemic because of travel bans. My dad was Air Force um, military, so I was born in Germany, spent a little bit of time in America, moved back to Germany in second grade, and was there through high school as a military brat. And lived there uh, until 98 and then moved to America, specifically Las Vegas. Um, Was introduced to American politics pretty quickly. There was, I think in my very first year or second year there, there was a vote to add marriages between a man and a woman to the Nevada State Constitution while I was there. And so that was my introduction to American politics. And then I studied elementary education. I was a fourth grade teacher there in Las Vegas. Was not the right fit for me professionally. 
So I found uh, speech pathology as a pretty similar career, something that seemed really interesting to me, but also seemed to give me more opportunities to get uh, out of the school-based setting and, you know, find it, find other places to work and honestly pays a little bit more. Found a really great online university. This was back before online universities were great, but I found one and was able to do school out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. So it was Nova Southeastern University. Oh, I've um, heard of it. That enabled me to, yeah, it was a, it was a really great program. And so this was back in the day when um, online schools were pretty boring. I mean, it was, you know, read the discussion board, answer 10 questions, ask five questions, mm-hmm. you know, and it was a lot of busy work. But Nova really replicated the online or the live in-person class setting where you would go to classes, you would do maybe two major assignments and two tests, two exams. So it just really felt like a like a normal grad school, but from your home and uh, was able to move from Vegas to San Diego, did some schooling there and then um, came up to Seattle, found Natalie pretty quickly and she was the first supervisor to not make me cry. So there we are. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing. <laughs> so um, I'm wondering, so where in this process of your life did you realize that you were queer? Um, you know, how did that, like, I, I'm wondering, were you in Germany at the time? Were you, were you already in the U.S.? Like, where were you in your life? I think I started to realize that I was actually in Las, uh, or in Reno visiting family when I think I was in middle school, late middle school, early high school. And um, it was the first time that I saw uh, two men holding hands at the airport and was like, oh, Whoa, that's interesting. And so I, I kind of figured it out in high school, but it was a really, really challenging environment to discover having a different sexual orientation because at the time, don't ask, don't tell had become mm-hmm. policy. And, and, you know, that that had profound impacts on my sexuality and my experience as a person coming out and as a professional. So let's back up a little bit just for those um, that aren't aware. One, what are your pronouns? And then, oh, two, yeah. Sorry, and then my two, bad. what is your sexual orientation? Uh, thanks for asking. Um, well, <laughs> thanks, so, so, my, <laughs> so my pronouns are she, her, and pretty recently I've started to use they, them. I would call myself a lesbian as long as I don't see myself as transgender, I guess. It's a kind of a tricky little scenario because I'm starting to feel less and less feminine and feel less and less like I want to try to fit into that box anymore. And then so mm-hmm. kind of brings those questions around. But I primarily date women. So there's the answer. I love this. Okay, we're going to dig deeper into what the new part of your life that they them what that means. But we can go back to where we were. So you're you were in Seattle with Natalie. <laughs> and that's all you remember. <laughs> that's all you remember. Well, you okay, so you you were in the military and mm-hmm. you realized that you were gay. Now, do, did Don't Ask, Don't Tell affect the families of people in the military as much as service people? Oh, good question. You know, I, I think it had to. It impacted me in the sense that, you know, when we think about Don't Ask, Don't Tell, we think about it as an employment law. But when you're a military brat, you live and you school in the military community. And the conversations around everything always relate back to 
being family members of service members and the role that we play as ambassadors of America to the rest of the world and the the expectations that are placed upon us to be, you know, higher functioning citizens, essentially, that, that that's how we present America to the world. And so it, it really did send the message to me that it is okay to be who you are, but that you have to do that in private and that it's shameful enough that it's not to be spoken of. And then the way that it affected me, like most, I think, queer people, you need to have someone to talk to. I attempted to go see a counselor and I attempted to speak with a counselor about my sexual orientation. And uh, I got home after meeting with the counselor and my dad sat me down and let me know that anything I say to a counselor is comes back to him. What? <laughs> Did hip count exist back then? He didn't say what he was told. Um, <laughs> but the fact that he had to say that. What? Mm-hmm. So it was, and, and, you know, and I think that's where the, you know, the shame starts to get built into you. It's, um, you know, if if you can't speak of it, then how horrible is it really? So, you know, to be told that going to a counselor is something that I need to be more cautious about, but then to not actually talk to me about what was said and do I need support and what comes next and how do I feel about myself and my self-esteem? They were all ignored, but I don't want to badmouth my father. He's an incredible man, but it, it, you know, he was shaped by don't ask, don't tell as much as I was. Do you feel like growing up in the military overseas even overemphasized that? Cause I grew up as a Navy brat. Oh, I stayed in, we stayed in the States the whole time. And my dad was the one that moved around. And so I never had that feeling of like, we are representation. I was just like, man, my dad's gone all the time. And that's all Mm -hmm. I thought about it. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering how that impacted you growing up in Germany than, you know, moving over. Was it, was there an even bigger emphasis? It's a profound impact because you don't have a lot of opportunities you know, you can't necessarily go to a mall in a neighboring city and get to know someone. So your community is pretty isolated to the people that you go to school with. And if you don't speak the language of the country that you're living in, then you're even more isolated. So we had this really unique experience of growing up and seeing the culture and the politics and the day-to-day life, the lifestyle of that country, but then also having a this really unique American experience that really bonds people together. So uh, we military brats are very closely knit. And, you know, once a military brat, always a military brat. So you meet another military brat and you might even potentially know, know someone. I, I was at a party maybe five years ago and ended up talking to somebody whose brother I went to high school with. And It was, you know, you're just so spread out and you will find traces of each other all over the place. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that answered your question, but it. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. It sounds like even more so that the idea of being a representation of the U.S. overseas and combine that with don't ask, don't tell. It's just an even bigger impact, Mm -hmm. Um, even when you come back over Mm -hmm. to the States. And so. That's hard. <laughs> yeah. But but here's actually kind of something that's a little different, though, because, um, because part of this timeline also incorporated. So I think Don't Ask, Don't Tell was implemented in around 1994. This was yeah. uh, this Early was also. Uh huh. And this was also when Ellen DeGeneres came out. 
So Don't Ask, Don't Tell very specifically told me that I could not speak about my sexuality or any difference in who I was in a professional setting right around the same time that Ellen spoke out about who she was and promptly lost her job. And that became Time Person of the Year. Uh, incredible. <laughs> <laughs> there was like and, a quick turnaround. <laughs> and now and now we're finding out that there's some problems uh, with her behavior as well in, in more recent, you know, news about her. But but watching her lose her job, lose her fame and be spoken so negatively about all around the same time that it was really um, cemented in my brain that that Don't Ask, Don't Tell was was normal. <laughs> Uh, really, really created a lot of fear-based thinking for me. So did you think when you were eventually going to enter the professional world that you were just, nope, regardless of how I feel, there's never going to be a coming out period for me? Oh, absolutely. Especially going into education. Right. Mm -hmm. And then when did you come out um, officially as a lesbian? In that time. Uh, it would be my my first year of college. I went to college in Las Vegas, Nevada. I, I had a girlfriend. My brother found us. <laughs> We're so immature. We're just kind of making faces right now. <laughs> girlfriend, girlfriend. <laughs> so I unfortunately didn't get to tell my brother <laughs> that I was a oh, lesbian. He found you. Found me and my girlfriend. <laughs> so you were living at home at the time. Um, I was in the dorm. So my uh, my brother went to Las Ve- University of Nevada, Las Vegas before me. So he was there two years before me. And then um, I was living in the dorms and um, in UNLV. And he, uh, I was on the first floor. So he just walked up to my window to say a quick hello. And- oh, <laughs> oh no! no! <laughs> I try not to laugh, but I'm cringing inside. Okay. What was your reaction then? Were you like, oh shit? Or were you like, "Ah," angry? He didn't didn't say anything right away. And then he was taking me to the bank. We were going to go set up my first bank account. And and I said, so Alex. (laughs) And he said, oh, I know. I know. (laughs) Oh, I know. Yep. Like every sibling. He said, said, well, cool. I guess we can go uh, check out chicks together. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it was a great, my brother is just, I love my brother. Awesome. (laughs) Yeah. What a fun story, though. That is super fun. (laughs) I'm not blushing or anything. (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) I know I am, but I can only imagine. So you were able to have that experience in college. You came out, you already knew at least socially that you would be able to come out, but professionally it was just a hard no. Um, I would say socially it was still because as soon as I got to Las Vegas, that's when the um, that amendment to the Constitution was being put into place. And it was, it was the Nevada State Constitution defining marriage between a man and a woman. When I think about these defining moments in my life, I think about sitting in this elementary education class this teacher who was going through kind of a cultural diversity training with all of his future teachers, students. And, you know, we talked about idea and, um, you know, students with disabilities. And then the next week we came to class, he started the session or he started the class with the words, well, now I'd like to talk about something really controversial. He said something like, what would you do if you had a student in your class who had four mothers show up for a parent-teacher conference? And Be um, happy? <laughs> right? Say hello to all of them? 
I mean, be so grateful that so many adults are loving and caring enough to show up to a meeting. Right. (laughs) Right. So he did that. And the whole class then proceeded to talk about just how inappropriate it is to be gay, you know, to talk. They started talking about the Bible and all these things. I was sitting in class with my hand raised, just like, I'm, I'm ready to speak if you'll ever call on me. And it took a while. My hand was up for a while. It was not my finest moment in life. But I, um, when I finally got to speak, I just was like, how dare you? How dare you talk that way? You know, and, and I said, I'm gay. And you're talking about me. And I can't even sit here. And I stood up and I stormed out of the classroom and I cried all the way back to the dormitory and, and then realized that night that crap, <laughs> I have to go back to class. <laughs> <laughs> I would call it a fine moment. Yeah, great moment. <laughs> it was and my, if my hand was up, it would have started snapping in a deep pattern. <laughs> um, yeah, so I went back to class the next day and the teacher pulled me aside as I was walking into the class and he apologized to me. And he said that, you know, he admitted that it was a, a really inappropriate way to introduce the topic and, and do a, And, you know, and I said, well, it's also inappropriate to let people talk that way for that long. And, and then I, I had to sit in class for the rest of the semester and not a single person talked to me and everybody gave me side eye for the rest of the semester. And, um, I, but I, I would have gone straight to a Dean. I would have been like, excuse me, I have a, I have a complaint. <laughs> but yeah. back then probably not i would have been on you know, falling on deaf ears i guess it's it's hard to say um but i think that's where some of that that definition of not having any sort of support along the way really comes into play because i didn't have anyone you know older than me who could advise me on what to do next really so you know going to the dean didn't even cross my mind to be honest it just didn't even strike me as a next step. You know, we've talked a little bit on this podcast about feeling isolated. As SLPs were often alone in our offices, being isolated. And I think as queer people in the field of speech language pathology, we can feel isolated. And this just tells me that maybe this is a, that there's a similar sort of thing in education as well, where there's a certain mindset and a certain kind of population that goes into that. And at the time you were training to be a teacher, correct? Yes, that's correct. You know, there was the same kind of isolation where you were the only queer person in the room that I knew um, about, mm-hmm. that you knew about, that you, mm-hmm. that you were the only one that had the bravery to speak up and tell them that they were wrong. Mm-hmm. That must've been really isolating. Uh, I would say that friend. education is an extremely isolating profession. I think it's the reason that what, what's the, statistic that half of new teachers quit by their third year. You know, I ended up in a classroom teaching 38 students, 38 fourth graders in my first year, and I didn't have any sort of mentorship program built up for me. And it was just plop, there you go. Here's 38 students, you know, in an at-risk neighborhood. And so I had to navigate and figure out how to get 38 fourth graders who were going through puberty, how to sit and learn (laughs) and and in the context of not having good nutrition and not have in the context of not getting a good night's sleep it was a really challenging time yeah yeah i was pulling apart fist fights and that was because my classroom management was atrocious Um, (laughs) but natalie remembers when i was an intern she was like you know it's just amazing you don't seem like you really need much help 
managing behavior and just, well. <laughs> and you're like, oh, that was, it's just one kid. It's easy. Right. There's not a lot going on here with a small <laughs> <Right>. group <laughs> one-on-one. Right. So so you, I have oh, a question. Ahead. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. Okay. <laughs> so when you were a teacher, were you out to your colleagues? I was. I was out to my colleagues. I was out to my um, principal. I was not out to my um, to my students. Mm-hmm. Was there any sort of, I guess, security? Was there awareness that you would be protected? Or were you just at risk when you came out? I would say I was just at risk. I, I wasn't, but I don't know. I, I think my principal, I had a really incredible principal. And I, I think he would have protected me. I don't think it would have been an issue. I, I was fighting my own internalized homophobia at that point. Mm-hmm. Okay. So education got out. And then moved to San Diego and started Nova? Or were you in Nova Um, and Vegas? I started Nova in my second year teaching, middle of my second year. And um, end of that second year, I essentially quit teaching, moved to San Diego, um, was able to find a special education job. So I was a special education teacher on a um, contingent license Mm -hmm. uh, for one year. And then I ended up at Sylvan Learning Center as a director of education. And so I worked as a director of education for probably I because I went through and got my um, I had to get all my post back credits. So I ended up being in grad school for close to five years. (laughs) And um, yeah, so I I was a director of education, but that gave me the opportunity to move up here to Seattle because one of my um, one of my colleagues got a job up here and was able to offer me a position up here and that I moved in something like 20 days. I was just out of there. (laughs) Yeah. Are we almost the time that we meet, Rebecca? We're, We're actually getting, close getting to that pretty time close the time. to the time that we met each other. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Can I start talking about how we met? Please do. <laughs> okay. So I love this story. And I just, I have so much respect for um, our first meeting, Rebecca. And you were so brave. So one thing that I love to do with all of, all of my graduate student interns, and I started this tradition with you, Rebecca, was um, taking them out to coffee mm-hmm. uh, and meeting them before we start our um, internship. Because I just remembered that when I was in my internships, it was very intimidating. And I thought, oh, it'd be so nice if like the intern could just meet me. And then there would be that one thing that they don't have to do. So we met at a coffee shop in Seattle and we're sitting there talking and like out of the blue, Rebecca just comes out to me and is like, I just want you to know that I'm, I'm a lesbian and I, you know, I hope that you don't have a problem with that. And I just, I sort of like chuckled internally because I was like, oh gosh, I really just, you know, I, I don't read as gay, I guess. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm fine with it. I'm gay too. And, uh, you know, I don't, it, I don't remember doing that. Yeah, I do. It was because it was just like, it was so brave. And, you know, you didn't know how I was going to, how I was going to react. You just, but you did, you did it anyway. And I was just like, damn, you know. I think it helped that, that I would be working with you in, on Capitol Hill, Seattle, which is the gay community in um, Seattle. At least it used to be. It's becoming less. (laughs) Right. It used to be. It's way different now. It used to be. It's been taken over. It, it has it's been, been taken, taken over, sadly. I I think I've moved to the new gay center, which is White Center. <laughs> it is. Mm-hmm. They have um, that bar out west over in mm-hmm. West Seattle. So people, the gays are moving. This is true. Mm-hmm. 
We are. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think it really helped knowing that I was going to be in that location. And I was just like, you know what? I'm just, I can't anymore. I'm exhausted. I just need to be just be open with who I am. And if if they can't accept me on Capitol Hill, then I don't want to be there. <laughs> I love what you said just now when you said, I'm just so tired. There is that fatigue that you get of kind of putting everybody first before mm-hmm. living your truth. And so did you feel more and more because I felt it, I don't know how old you were at this time. But when I turned 30, I was like, I have zero fucks left to give, you that's, know, and so it was just like, here I am accepted or not like I'm yeah. done. I think I met Natalie at 28. So it was right around that age where I was just like, I can't anymore. It had just defined me in so many ways. And it had created so many self-esteem problems for me. And, um, you know, and I look back to my teenage years, my high, you know, my high school years, and even just my early 20s. I mean, I was too old to be acting this way. And I was still acting in such rebellious ways. And I've always you know, linked it back to just feeling like I didn't have a connection with the adults in my life that would keep me from doing really horrible things. And so I I just did horrible things. And, you know, I I have a lot of shame around my teenage and my early 20s um, with the behavior that I had. Um, And I know I know a lot of people will say that. But but I also I also specifically remember feeling like, if, if my parents weren't going to like me, I'd rather they not like me for something I did. Mm-hmm. That psychology is just, I that you're not alone in that because yeah. if it's something you do, it's an action outside of yourself, not related to your being and your inherent worth, right? And so somebody says, I don't love you because of this. That's just even more like, shaking you know like there's yeah. you, you know left, so, right right what's left then therefore i'm not worthy of love you know and so i get it you know you're definitely not alone in that experience yeah but natalie met me when i was finally on my upswing so <laughs> yay I know. well you know and just now knowing more about how you grew up that's i just you're even braver than I realized at the time. I thought, oh, that's really brave. But, you know, just considering, oh, gosh, Hector. Hector. I live on First Hill. So otherwise known as Pale Hill, for those of you that aren't in Seattle, it's just a bunch of (laughs) hospitals. So I often hear sounds. Yeah, Yeah. a lot of hospitals. (laughs) Yeah, so many, so many hospitals. Yeah, but just knowing more about how you grew up and sort of the attitudes that that were taught to you as a a young person coming out to a stranger who's you know your my supervisor your internship supervisor (laughs) a supervisor um just wow that's even you're even braver than i than i thought you were at the beginning well thank you let's talk a little bit about that upswing so like most people we have that like i'm going to hell (laughs) And then at some point we turn it around, you know, whenever, I don't know, that's different for everybody, but what was your process in doing that? Were you, did you seek out support? Did you find community? You know, what resources did you use to kind of like reclaim your worth, so to speak? 
I was I was pretty well entrenched in my community by that point. Um, I was living on Capitol Hill, just across the street from the gay dance club. So, <laughs> so which ones? Pretty well. Uh, it was the War Room. Do you remember the War Room? I've heard of it. I remember the oh. War Room. <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's not there anymore, but it was. Woo. <laughs> and the neighbors is right there, and neighbors. Oh, like okay. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, right there, and. Um, I think the upswing. I had, you know, I had some scary moments that I probably won't speak to um, in depth about. But I, I had some things happen, and um, and I made some choices um, that really scared me. And um, but I was still functioning. I was still getting through grad school. I was still getting good grades. I was, you know, making it work. Um, and then I met Natalie, and Natalie, like I said, she was the first supervisor to not make me cry. And, you know, Natalie, you really did shape me um, and you gave me a platform to feel safe, um, to feel like I had a place in the profession. Um, you know, I almost being in Nova prepped me for the isolation of being a speech pathologist. Um, but the employer that we have, uh, you know, we work in a in an, a clinical office with there, I think there are seven of us. So there's, it's not an isolated practice at least, but, um, but Natalie's talked about her, her manager who she came out to and that manager uh, just was everything. Who was also your manager. She was also right. my manager for a long time. And she was, yeah. you know, I have, I always, she was my professional, you know, mentor from a managerial perspective. And uh, she really made me feel safe and loved and cared for. Um, but the the isolation, I think, I, there are a lot of things that got me ready for isolation. You know, my, my family still lives in Germany. So I don't really have much family connection anyways. Aside from what we can do with uh, Skype. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As a professional SLP, then, have you always been out? Yes, I was became a professional SLP at 28. So I was mm-hmm. I was pretty well out. But, you know, it's that always out. No, absolutely not. Um, I spend every day meeting new patients, going through the debate. Is this a person I feel safe with? Mm. Um does it, yep. is it enough? Is it important enough? Will my therapeutic relationship with this person last long enough that it's worth um, coming out to them? Or is this um, something that's going to destroy the therapeutic relationship? And it has. Um, so it's, you know, I, uh, I actually, the, ma- the manager we talk about, I, I've sat in her office many times and said, you know, I don't feel like I can come out. I just don't feel like I can say it to my patients. And she would just keep saying, you can do it. There's nothing wrong with coming out. Nobody, if anybody has a problem, they can have a different therapist. We'll move them to a different provider. And so she she was always so encouraging, but I just couldn't do it. And I would say even as recently as two years ago, I was still um, really emotionally beating myself up with how... Um, internalized my homophobia is and um, needing to decide every single day. But in the last, I'd say two years, I've, I've really started to just 
say it out loud and and not withhold it. But it still scares me a lot, especially when I'm working with uh, parents of children that I'm, or, you know, pa- the patient is my is a child, and I'm working with their parent. So again, a profound experience similar to what we all kind of go through, especially when you work with pediatrics. You just have this fear. Even even working with the older population, it's. I had, you know, I had a favorite, a favorite patient and, and they, they adored me. We worked together for two years and, um, went on a break and I came back from my wedding, um, my, my lesbian wedding and they came in and asked, Oh, well, what's his name? And it was that time that I finally decided that I was done you know, catering to them. And, and I, I said, well, you know, honestly, it's not a, it's not a he, I married a woman and her name's Kate. And they looked at me and just said, oh, and that was it. And I never saw them again. Oh, that's mm. so hard after yeah. like forming a relationship with them and they got to know you as a person. And they still couldn't accept that. Oh, that's so sad. Sorry. And that was it. Yeah. And I I always talk about that sense of needing to come out. And, you know, you realize that when you are put in the position of needing to come out, that you are deciding if you're going to be honest once or you're going to lie a million times. Right. Because it really is <sighs> Sometimes that, right? Sometimes lying you a million whatever... times is worth it. Yeah. yeah. It, every every question thereafter has to essentially fit that narrative that you're putting forward. So I, I get that. That's tough. So I wanted to ask a little bit more about we you've been identifying as she, her for your entire life, and then even professionally as a lesbian. And then you mm-hmm. started to, you know, explore your sexuality more. And have, you know, identified as they, them under certain contexts. Can you give us a little bit more information about that? Yeah, it's, um, it feels strange to talk about this sense of feeling non-binary, especially because it feels so new to me. So it feels strange to almost feel like I'm um, a, a representative of a community that I'm just barely starting to acknowledge. So with that caveat in mind, my experience is that I'm 5'10", I'm broad-shouldered. I would say that my my the way that I carry myself is pretty masculine. Throughout most of my teenage years, I was misgendered pretty frequently. And I ex- uh, had a lot of experience of just this really deep-seated fear that I was going to be misgendered in front of my parents. So much so that I, I have probably age 14, I remember you know, really trying to like sit up straight, show that I had breasts, show that I had a ponytail, try to give as many feminine markers as I could. If, you know, I'm sitting at the pizzeria and, you know, the the waitress is, or the server, sorry, the server comes up to take our order and then I might, you know, what does he want? I had a lot of experiences like that along the way and a lot of anxiety around that. So then as I got older, um, I entered my queer community and I really started to identify as lesbian. And, you know, when we think about the L word, you the, the L word was hard on the trans community. It really was. It was so hard on the trans community. You're talking about the L word, the television show, right? The television show. Um, yeah. It was, it was really the, the original L word, not, not the new one. Um, 
but it was really hard. And the judgment from the the lesbian community was we really wanted to keep our butch lesbians. It made it really difficult for for trans people to come out in that kind of setting. Anyways, I don't know why I went on the the L word thing. That's a perfect segue because I had a question <laughs> as a gay man. You know, I understand that there's you know a bunch of like there's a spectrum to being a lesbian and identifying as a butch lesbian. And then, like, what does that? I'm trying to figure out how to word the question but like can you explain to others out there both of you you know as far as like the kind of like the border between identifying as a butch lesbian and then maybe even identifying more as they that non-binary even is there a close is it like a thin red line like what does that look like do you have any thoughts on that natalie i think that there's as many answers as there are people Mm. You know, I think that you you can identify you can you can present as very feminine and still identify as non-binary. Uh, I recently actually made a mistake with a friend who looked very feminine on the outside, and so I was using she/her pronouns without even asking. And then I I mean I had known this person for a year, and finally she was like, "Oh yeah, oh, there oh, I go." <laughs> they were like, "Oh yeah, by the way, I use they them pronouns," and I. I, I let my visuals get in the way of, uh, you know, I made an assumption about that person. Yeah. So I think that there's as many answers as, as people. I think that you can be feminine looking and still identify as non-binary. You can be masculine looking and, and identify as, as female. You know, I don't think there are any real answers. What do you think, Rebecca? Yeah. I mean, I, I, th- I think for me, there was, there was a lot of internalized transphobia that I was dealing with as well. And so I never, you would not look at me and call me butch. I don't think some people would call me butch, but um, there are times in my life that I looked more butch than others. But as soon as I got misgendered, I went really back. So, and for me, misgendered at that time was to be called he, um, I would really pull back from any sort of um, indicators that that I might be questioning. But what really the reason that in the last I'm I'm 40 now and I'm just now starting to use they them. Um, what really has pulled me out is that I really identified in the queer community and I lived within the queer community until I met my wife, and my wife's family lives here, and so we they are a very tight knit family. So we spend a lot of time in a high income, cishet normative environment where the girls are girls and the boys are boys and it's really well defined. And I go to family dinners and I don't fit in. I don't fit in with the girls I don't care about what they care about. I don't talk about what they talk about. I don't shop the way they shop. I don't look the way they look. And honestly, I'd rather hang out with the boy cousins, but they don't, they won't take me in. So I do hang out with the boy cousins, but I'm not part of them. Mm -hmm. And I'm also not part of the girl cousins because I just don't fit in with them. And so it's starting to make me realize just how, my gender really has played a major role in my life. And I'm just now starting to kind of process what that really means to me. And I, you know, and I'm really starting to say, am I, am I a boy? I, I don't, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, to be and, determined. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a process. And I, you know, I, it, I think like a lot of things in life, it's, it's, it's not something that's ever really done. You know, it's not like you can just put yourself into a box and stay there. Right. Right. I think it's beautiful that you're, you know, that you're coming to these realizations and you're on your own journey. It just makes me happy. <laughs> it makes me scared. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, it's okay to be scared. It's yeah. scary, right? Yes, yeah. How was it for your wife? So I imagine you both met, you know, she, her, mm-hmm. cis females, lesbians, and then you have this process. What was that like? We haven't talked about it. She knows that I have started to use they, them pronouns. Mm -hmm. She hasn't really asked about like where my thoughts are on that. She's just supported it. She's like, all right, that's fine. But I think that if I ever were to come out as truly transgender, like to actually say that I am transgender, which as being feeling more and more and more non-binary, I would fall into transgender category, but I don't necessarily identify that way yet. Perhaps we would have a real conversation around it. But right now it's, I'm still just Rebecca to her. And I think that she would support me. She, she likes it when I look butch. So, (laughs) (laughs) so, but there's my internalized fear of like, I still have the fear of being called he, which I think if I wanted to present as he, and I got called he, that would be great. Right. But I don't, I, but, but there's all that transphobia, that internalized transphobia of, I said to a friend the other day, it's, is it worth the investment? You know, am I enough transgender that it's worth the investment to oh. tell my parents and to deal with all those things? You know, that is that piece of intersectionality that we talk about within the queer community, where it's one thing to come out as gay or lesbian and then you throw in the added layer of your gender expression you know mm-hmm. like it's that's that piece of it that I can't understand Natalie can't understand I'm speaking for Natalie by the way and then, yeah. <laughs> Go for it, Hector. And then you know and so Rebecca you have this added layer and so you know for a lot of the community we don't understand that and you know, and I love that you can speak to that, you know, as you're processing this, because that visibility is so important, especially for the trans community in this like day and age. Mm-hmm. But um, so we talked a little bit about what it means to be a proud professional for you, um, you know, and you gave us that wonderful answer about it, essentially a, it's a process and, and there's it's not always a pretty process. What on the other end then from our field and from allyship and what, what, what does it look to you, the future? What would you like to see? The future in the world in general or in the community? In the- yeah. I'll give you all of them. So the world, the, our profession, or just in the professional world in general. I would like to see. So like Asha really disappointed me. And I wrote them the just nastiest. After. <laughs> just one time? Oh. Just one time. Only one? <laughs> but I wrote them the nastiest email. And it was it was right after, um, you know, the, the tragedies of the summer. And, um, you know, the statement that they came out it, with their, their We Support Black Lives statement that was just so 
painful to even look at. Um, so a so a future for me would be professional organizations that take the time to talk uh, to listen before they speak, that we can care for each other just a little better. Um, but it, but a truly a truly positive future. This is what I told my employer when you know we they're, they're doing all these listening sessions. And they ask, like, what, you know, what, what could we do to truly support better diversity in our healthcare? And the answer that I gave was that they need to start pushing at governmental levels to make higher education free or very low cost so that we can bring people into these graduate level and beyond classes without destroying their future with these student loans. And if we can truly make it accessible, if we can truly make education, higher education accessible, then we can diversify our professional fields. And that if they really care, they'll start to do scholarship programs and they'll start to petition our government to make education accessible for people who can't afford it. And that is why I would say speech pathology looks the way that it does. It's people who can afford to go to school. So my ideal would be low cost and free education and paid internships because it's only in the helping fields that internships are not paid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is um, a huge part of it. I think on top of, you know, like you said, with the accessibility of it all is that truth that we a lot of us end up in education and the the paycheck does not reflect the amount of education that we are required to have in order to just even start at the big at entry level you know and so you know I, I graduated the same way with all that debt and uh, like i had 125 i think and I 110. Start, we're all six figures. Um, <laughs> what a great achievement. Um, and, if you're going to go big. <laughs> right. And then I, my CF, I was making 45,000. You know, like that is just ridiculous. But there is no way around not having that master's level, you know, degree. You, you can't practice. Um, so I don't understand, you know. I mean, I get it, but. Uh, it's very frustrating. And there's talk of trying to, um, you know, require that we get a PhD or an educational uh, doctorate right. to even do this profession. And so are we now we're going to put people at 200,000 in debt, quarter right. of a million in debt. Right. Thanks, PTs. You really need to be DPTs. Did you? <laughs> but Hector, you're not bitter. I'm not bitter at all. <laughs> Except for when they ask me to call them doctor. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, okay. Um, but anyway, besides the point. Um, so that's at a, an organizational level. Um, what about professionally? Like as far as, you know, we talked about access to, you know, being a professional. What do you want to see as far as just kind of more representation, equity, you name it. What what does that look like for you? I think it looks like better resources for understanding um, diversity, you know, the diversity of our population. So um, really understanding dialect. You know, we're really fortunate to live in the state of Washington where uh, health insurance equity is required. 
you know, by our insurance commissioner. So transgender healthcare is pretty universally accessible here in the state of Washington, but it's not other places. Um, so better equity in healthcare availability and access better materials, which, uh, you know, there are a lot of people doing a lot of really good work out there. And and even on Teachers Pay Teachers, and, you know, just seeing better quality products with more diversity within them. You know, I'm, I'm still using, unfortunately, pretty old materials, and I'm pretty sad about some of what I still see in the materials. So I have to just skip those pages and, and I should do better. I need to do better too. Hector and I have decided we need to do better too with that. Yeah. Whole, if you listen to our diversity, our DNI episode, we kind of were like, we're like, oh gosh, we're not, well, womp womp. <laughs> it's womp, not womp. <laughs> right. We know that representation in therapy materials is so important, and in in clinic materials. So yeah, that would be wonderful. I think seeing it for us, especially, was like, whoa, there's nothing commercial that you can purchase everything mm-hmm. has to be self-made and so that alone on top of our workload balance it's hard to find the like i like you said personal capital to be like i'm gonna make sure i invest in making you know diverse products when you could be like oral right. to use this yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah well it's like you choose between making those materials and making sure that they're appropriate Mm-hmm. Or, you know, using the, the already pre-made materials that aren't really appropriate, but gives you time to do your paperwork that you're required to do. And there's a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've, I've worked in many different settings. And you know what? What's the same about all of them? Lots of paperwork. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, Lots the materials more. reflect the person who made them, right? So right. It, it also just goes to show that the the production also lacks diversity, you know, that... that mm-hmm. even, going so far as to say that it seems like super duper probably needs to hire more people of color and more people from the LGBTQIA population. Or the queer SLP creates their own line. (laughs) Merchandising, merchandising. I'm going to retire. Call me the next Michelle Garcia winner. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to do it, Hector. Yep. I'm ready. Retirement by 30 something <laughs> 30 something 30 something. years do we I'm have getting, I'm getting, I'm getting plenty i have my birthday's on tuesday so oh, that's right. I have seven, seven years left <laughs> to retire oh, you're turning 33 <laughs> yeah oh you're so yeah. young uh, <laughs> i can say that now because i'm in my 40s oh. <laughs> you're a baby so I think we've covered most everything um, and it looks like we're, you know, out of time. Um, is there any, you know, last thoughts that you can think of that you'd like to share? Like I got all emotional, Natalie got emotional. Most people kind of get emotional. So if you have anything that you'd want to share to the community or any like baby LGBTQ plus SLP, like what would you say? I would say that it's important to... Um, that if diversity is important to you, then if you're already in the field, it's your job to mentor the people that you want to see in your field and to really try to bring people in. Make yourself available and bring in the diversity. 
and encourage people who are of diverse backgrounds to go to school and try to help them. And even if it's in, in micro grants, like paying for an exam for someone or buying them a textbook, that's how, that's how we can diversify our field. If you're still struggling with coming out that know that it's, you know, it, it's an ugly process. It's something that you're going to be doing for the rest of your life and knowing that you're going to do it for the rest of your life, then there's no rush now. So take your time, give yourself some grace, love yourself as much as you love everyone else. Be kind to yourself and be kind to others and diversify your field with mentorship and love. I love this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> me too Hector me too uh, that was great thank you I meant uh, it <laughs> yes we, I think we all do you know so that's a wonderful thing so again thank you so much Rebecca for being on our podcast um, thank you for making me feel valued yeah yes, you thank already you. are we're just giving yeah. you the platform that's all yeah Thank you for tuning in to this episode where we learned about Rebecca Von During. Tune in next time for our next proud professional episode with SLP Maurice Goodwin, all the way from the state of Texas. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends and colleagues where to find us. We can be located on Facebook at The Queer SLP, on Instagram at The Queer SLP, and our website is thequeerslp.com. Download our podcast at Stitcher, Podbean, Amazon. Yeah. And Apple Podcasts. Bye. Bye.